for a second there, I thought he was going to follow me up here. <laughs> we had a uh, Easter cantata in our church in Dallas, and there was a part of the cantata where I, I had to leave the audience and walk up and interact with the character on the stage, and the people I was sitting with didn't know what I was doing. And so when I stood up and started walking up, this whole row stood up with me as if we were going to communion or something, and it was... I just turned and go, no, sit down, just me. I thought Pierce was on that page. We had a great Easter season, didn't we? A, a great celebration of Jesus Christ. The opportunity to consider his life, the opportunity to consider his death and his resurrection. And, and we looked at that over the last couple of weeks. What, is, what does it look like to live in light of the cross? And to live in a place where we understand that Jesus' death was sufficient for our salvation. That there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we must do. There's nothing we could do that could add anything to that. To consider our lives in light of the cross and, and to consider our lives in light of the resurrection. That's the Easter season. And, and to consider the resurrection and to see that there's no part of our life that the Lord Jesus himself can't absolutely resurrect. The same way that he did his son, the same way the father raised the son from the grave is the same power we're given to live by, the book of Ephesians tells us. And that's what we looked at during the Easter season. So we're left with it considering Jesus, considering his cross and his resurrection. And now we have to come to a place where we say, now what do we do with our faith? Why were we given faith? Why did he save us? What was the point of salvation? Is, is God just trying to uh, kind of create for himself a trophy case of people? Where he saves some and puts them on a shelf and goes, look what I did. Or does he have some greater plan in mind? What was his purpose for salvation? It's interesting. I, I read a book a couple of years ago called Unchristian by David Kinnaman. It's a fascinating book if you've ever had a chance to pick it up. It was written in 2007. Uh, it's a fascinating book because if you read it, you have this idea of what the book's going to be about. It's titled Unchristian. And so you think that it's going to be about the world and, and how the world doesn't respond the way that it should. And it takes a really fascinating turn really, really early in the book. Because what this book starts to articulate, the fact is that many people in the church live a life that isn't Christian. See, some of us have bought into this idea that when Christ saves us, that salvation was the only thing that mattered. That having come to faith, that's it. We were saved and that's it. And we just keep moving. And some people have been given into, bought into the lie that Christianity is just a moral religion. Where God has this strict line of codes. And as long as we X, Y, and Z, and we don't get anywhere close to D, E, and F, we'll be fine. Well, that's one of the funny things about this book. You find that David Kinneman, who's the president of Barna Research Group, Barna's been doing Christian research and polling since the mid-80s. This is what they found. They did a survey. They said, when asked to identify, identify the activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers. So they did this statistical analysis and came up with people who identified themselves as born-again believers. It says people who were born-again believers were just as likely to bet just as likely to gamble, just as likely to visit pornographic websites, just as likely to take something that did not belong to them, just as likely to go to a medium or a psychic, just as likely to engage in a physical fight or to abuse somebody. 
They were just as likely to consume enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal, non-prescriptive drug, just as likely to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she had did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. Statistically, Christians in the United States do not differ from their culture, according to this book. In fact, if there's any statistical way that Christians differ from the world, he says it's this. That we, most notably, we own more Bibles. We attend church more often, and we're more likely to give money to a religious organization. We're more likely. So if we're pursuing a moral religion, we're failing. We're, we're failing. This is why the church is not seeing a picture of Jesus Christ that's adequate. Because they're looking at the world to be different. In fact, he goes on to say that of 87% of the people they surveyed said they knew a born-again Christian. Only 12% of them said that they saw that faith made an active part of that person's life. See, see we've bought into this idea that pursuing moralism is about Jesus. That Jesus wants to save us. And to just make us a better person. In 1980, or I'm sorry, 1994, Christian sociologist Christian Smith, a professor from Notre Dame, coined Christianity in America, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a term that's gaining a lot of repute in the church right now. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That instead of following Jesus Christ, we become moralistic therapeutic deists. So let's break it down so you understand what it means. It took me a dictionary to figure it out. Moralistic. We think God merely wants us to make morally right decisions. Therapeutic. We really think God just wants us to feel better about ourselves. Deists. We believe in God, but not a personal God. We think God exists, but he sure doesn't have a whole lot to do with me. We think God exists, but he's far off. And so when you paint that whole picture, you find that the majority picture of Christianity in our country are people who believe in a God that is distant and not personal, who wants them to act correctly and feel better about themselves. Is that why Jesus Christ died on a cross? Did Jesus just die on a cross so we'd feel better about ourselves and become better moral agents? Man, I sure hope not. I sure hope not. So we come to the book of Jude. It is a small book, one not often taught. I'll grant you that. It's 25 short verses. Let me read the first three to you. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In, in verse 3, if you'll leave it up for a couple minutes, Jude gives you the calling of this book. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This guy Jude is writing a book, right? He writes 25 verses, and what he says to this, this body of people is, my beloved, people whom I love dearly, I wanted to write you a letter, and I wanted to tell you about the greatness of our salvation. I wanted to just blow out for you what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. I want you to know the greatness of our salvation. 
I want you to be enthralled in it, captivated by it. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Jude wanted to pick up his pen and tell you how great salvation was. But writing to a group of people who've given their lives to Christ, he said, I find it more necessary to write to you, to plead with you, to urge you to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the next five weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend five weeks pleading with you out of the book of Jude that you would take your life and contend for the gospel. Because if you look at the picture that the world is getting of Christianity, it's morally corrupt. It's culturally irrelevant. And it's certainly not engaging at all. He pleads. He pleads with them that they would contend for the faith. So let's go to verse 1. This is one of those passages, by the way, that when I went to Dallas Seminary, you go, only a pastor would preach on this. You just look at it and you go, well, that's okay, it's an introduction. But there's so much there. So let's start to dig in. Jude. Well, we should start with who's Jude. It's a really good idea to figure out who's writing this letter. Jude is actually Greek for Judas. Uh, if I was a New Testament guy and my name was Judas, I'd go by something else. It's not really hard to figure that out. We're in the middle of a massive baby boom in this church, not hearing a whole lot of Judases as name suggested. Not a lot of people look into that. Um, you find it's a transliteration, probably went by Judas, but um, his name is Jude. This book was probably written in the late 60s. According to tradition, the Fox's Book of Martyrs says that Jude was crucified in, in the mid-70s uh, for believing in Jesus, so he, he clearly meant it. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. When Jude comes to identify himself, he says two things. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now those are two really interesting identifications. They're two interesting things that he would choose to say about himself. But when you dig into it, you find there's a whole lot more here. Because historically, Jude is actually the brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of Jesus. Judas, Judas, Jesus' little brother. Now, I don't know if you've ever conceptualized what it would look like growing up with Jesus as your big brother. But I think there'd be some hard expectations to live up to. I think you out, Jesus is always perfect. I'm, I'm, he never sins. He doesn't do anything wrong. This would be a challenging way to grow up, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. You actually find, according to the scriptures, according to John 5, that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. None of them believed in him. And so it's got to take an awful lot for a guy who grew up as a little brother of Jesus to come to faith. We find, actually, that two of them did, that we know of. In Mark 6, 3, it says, Isn't this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas? Jude, Mark 6, attests that it was his brother. John 7, none of his brothers believed him. But a tremendous thing happens during the resurrection. Acts 1.14 says this, All of these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So you find a tremendous thing happens. 
that during the resurrections, his brothers start to identify with their brother. Now, where that makes that significant is in Jude 1, when Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. If Jude is going to challenge you to engage with the gospel, the first thing Jude's going to start to challenge you with, if you want to contend with the gospel with your life, it's going to be how do you identify yourself? Because Jude doesn't come out by saying, hey, I'm Jesus' brother. I'm pretty awesome. That's how I would have started this. I'm Jesus' better looking brother. You know, something that would have made me sound better or more cool. But instead, he actually comes out, leads with a statement. Two statements that are extraordinarily humble. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ, a douloi. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I'm his bond servant. And if it's challenging for someone to claim to be somebody else's bond servant or slave, way more challenging to look at your older brother, who inevitably tried to make you a slave most of his life, if he was anything like my brother. I'm a slave to Jesus. He owns me. He can call me and command me to do anything he wants because I'm his. I'm a bondservant of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And from an apologetic standpoint, the fact that a brother would come to faith and would testify, a brother that historically considered would have walked with him, is now testifying that this guy is a Christ, is an incredible apologetic to who Jesus was, on a side note. But a tremendous statement of identity that he identified himself as a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. See, and James in our culture is a normal name, but James is not a normal name in this culture. We miss the fact that in the early church, James was one person. It was only one. If you're talking about one guy, you're talking about James, the Lord's brother, who becomes the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem. This guy was it in the early church. And so rather than claiming his attributes, rather than putting before you his qualifications, he merely says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm a brother of the pastor. That's my authority to talk to you. Not I'm a brother of the Messiah. He, he finds his total identity in being a servant of Jesus and establishes authority based on his brother, not on himself. That's significant. And it's unique. Because we can go through life claiming authority on all sorts of things and claiming identity on all sorts of things. But not Jesus. The call of this book is that we would analyze our life, we would look internally, we would gauge ourselves and say, what do I identify my life with? Am I just a dad? Do I just have a job? Am I just a farmer? What am I? Am I a house mom? Am I a sister? Am I, am I someone who was an incredible high school athlete and I'm still living on that? How do I identify myself? What is my principal identity? And how am I going to let my life flow out of that? 
Because most of us, if you tore us down, you'd find that we identify ourselves in a lot of categories that aren't Jesus. And when we find ourselves in those categories and in those boxes, when we don't meet the muster, when we can't actually achieve what we think we should in those areas, we let it tear us apart. When we're not the husband we think we should be, when our boss criticizes us because we're not doing our work as well as we should, we get torn down because we principally find ourselves in those boxes rather than principally finding ourselves as a servant and a slave of Jesus. Now let me tell you where that matters. Let me tell you where that matters most. To engage this culture in the name of Jesus is a risky endeavor. To engage this culture in the name of Jesus is a costly endeavor. It will always take risk. It will always cost you something. And when you engage it in your own person, on your own strength, in your own identity, with your own qualifications, under your own authority, you have something to lose. But when you engage somebody under the identity of Jesus Christ, under the authority of Jesus Christ, you lose nothing. You risk nothing. Because if somebody thinks worse of you, they think worse of you for the name of Jesus. The early disciples thought it was awesome to be beaten for the name of Jesus. And we're challenged that somebody would think worse of us? These guys reveled that somebody would beat them for the name of Jesus. Man, we were, man, they beat us for Jesus. That's incredible. That's incredible that somebody would think of beating us in his name. And we're terrified, terrified to engage somebody and to mention Jesus. That they would think worse of us. Because we need to find our identity. We need to find our authority in Jesus Christ. That's to live in light of, his cross, of the cross. That's to live in light of the resurrection. That's to live a life that contends for the gospel, is to find yourself absolutely, completely, entirely in Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Historically, we actually don't know who this book was written to. Likely, um, Jude, was it still around the church in Jerusalem? Likely, he's writing it to early Palestinian Christians who are engaging a culture that's morally depraved. And they're coming up against a lot of issues in the church because they're Gnostics that are growing in the church. People who are thinking that the faith is just about head knowledge and are morally bankrupt. Does that sound familiar at all? We can be so easily caught into the idea that, that the church and following Jesus is, is just about knowing things, but we totally divorce it morally. That it's just about knowing. And it's not about anything else. It's the church they lived in. It was a culture they lived in. To those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, and Jude starts to lay out your identity for you. He gives you three different perspectives, three different pictures, and three different places in a timeline that he wants you to understand where Jesus is in your life. And it's incredibly significant. So Jude says this, to those who are called, to those who are called, 
In the book of Ephesians 1, 4, it says, For be- from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth, I called you. Do you understand the significance of God's choosing you and calling you into his service? It means that not a single one of you was an accident. It means when he chose you, he picked you, he looked across the roughly 7 billion people on this planet and he said, you know what, I want to pick that one. I want to take this person and I want this person's life to declare my glory to the world. Oh yeah, they're smarter. Oh yeah, they're better looking. Oh yeah, there are a myriad of more talented people out there, but he picked you. And the glory of the scriptures, the glory of the gospel is he picked you before the beginning of the world. So it has nothing to do with your qualifications. It has nothing to do with how good you can be. It has nothing to do with your abilities or skills. And it certainly has nothing to do with your mistakes. You can't even disqualify yourself from this if you try really hard. Because he picked you before the beginning of the world before you even existed, before you could even blow it. And don't challenge the idea that he didn't know. Oh, he absolutely knew. He absolutely, utterly knew what he was doing when he picked you. Did he pick you just to be a moral agent? Did he pick you just to put you on a trophy rack so people could look and say, oh. Or did he pick you because he's longing for little illustrations of his redemptive glory walking around this planet? And that's the answer. He chose you to declare his redemptive story to the world the same way creation does. The same way that you would look at the stars and say, God is magnificent. He's incredible. How could a God create this? He uses your life to declare his redemptive glory. That somebody who might look at you and go, man, that, that guy? Are you kidding me? In 2002, I moved to Dallas Seminary. Uh, it's a crazy story. Ask me about it sometime. It, it's really kind of a mind-blowing ordeal. When I got to Dallas Seminary, my first day in orientation, I met a guy named Bo Berman. Bo and I looked at each other from across the room, and immediately our eyes connected. And the first question we had to ask each other upon walking towards each other was, bro, I didn't even know you knew Jesus. Like we were shocked that the other guy, because we'd known each other in high school, even knew the Lord, let alone would ever consider ministry or seminary. And that's the redemptive story in Jesus Christ being played out, that people would look at your lives and go, man, I knew that guy before he gave his life to Jesus. And what's going on now? I cannot explain it. That's the redemptive story of Jesus. That's the story, the the narrative that the church needs to be putting before our cultures, the stories of people and individuals. So people look at you, man, whoo, that guy was a swearer or a cusser, all these things. Man, the stuff he was into was mind-blowing, but now I can't even explain it. What's going on? That's the narrative that God's wanting to tell in your story. He called you before the beginning of time to make sure you knew it was not about you. It's not about you. If you have a success talking to somebody about Jesus, it's not about you. You're just the book that he's using to declare his redemption. It's about him. It's always been about him. 
to those who are called. By the way, if you watch these three, uh, Jude loves triads. He puts things in threes, and if, if you watch them, you'll find the calling is your past. In your past, your calling is absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. And, and when he comes to the second one, he deals with your present. The third one, your future, we'll touch it on it. But to those who are called, he has your past taken care of. To those who are beloved in God the Father. If you want to understand your identity, it's to understand your calling, that he chose you, he picked you to declare his redemptive story. You want to understand your present. It's to understand that you are beloved in God the Father, that you are loved richly and deeply and completely and utterly and magnificently and flawlessly It goes on and on and on. At the end of Ephesians 3, Paul prays this tremendous prayer. But the end of the prayer really says, I just want you to know and understand, this is scripture by the way, that you would understand the height, the width, and the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. And to know that that love surpasses all understanding. That Paul, in the words of scriptures, just wants you to get to clue into how much God loves you. How much he loves you. And it doesn't matter what you've done, what you didn't do, whether you're meeting this list of achievements, whether you're not meeting this list of achievements. God absolutely loves you. And to walk daily knowing that you're an absolutely loved creature. See, some of us walk around because we're disappointed that our dads didn't love us well or that this person didn't love us well or this bad thing happened to us and I wasn't really loved well. And we don't really know where we sit because we're not sure if we're being approved of it by this, this, or this. And like, the God of the universe loves you with a perfect and enormous love. Let me put it this way. If I gave you a piggy bank and I put infinity dollars in it, and somebody came by and stole five bucks from you, how much would be in your jar? Infinity. If somebody came by and stole 200 bucks from you, how much would be in your jar? Infinity. Do you understand that's God's love for you? It's infinite. So what happens to you does not challenge his love for you. What you've done or in the past or doing in the future doesn't challenge his love for you. He loves you with an infinite love. And that's the narrative he wants you living out in the world. It's not just that you've been called, but that you're loved. And you're loved with this complete way that the world is longing for. You have this acceptance that the world will never understand because they're going to run around trying to get their needs met and run around trying to please people. And when they find, they get busier and busier and busier trying to make people happy and do things and and get everywhere. And it doesn't work. But to live in the infinite love of the Father is the only way that you can live in a way that's not bankrupt that tells the redemptive story of Jesus, that people would look at your life and go, man, whew, I can't believe that guy said that to you, but you're not even bothered by it. Why? Man, I'd have punched that guy in the mouth. 
I can't believe that when they laid you off, you're, you, you were calm about that. What, what was the deal with that? You know, my identity is not my job. My identity is in Jesus Christ. And I'm just, it's hard. I don't know what we're going to do with our family, but I'm just going to, I'm going to trust him. I know he's going to take care of us because that's who he is. That, that's what the world needs to see out of believers. That's the narrative we need to cue into. That we are called and that we are loved and that we are kept for Jesus Christ. If your past is secure, if your present is secure, your future in Jesus Christ is absolutely and utterly secure. You're kept for Jesus Christ. For just a second, let's consider this word kept. That means currently you are kept. In the future, you will be kept. A week from now, you'll be kept. Six weeks from now, you'll be kept. Nine months from now, still kept. Three years from now, kept. Ten years from now, kept. Forty years from now, kept. If you're 87 years old and you're wondering about tomorrow, you're kept. If you're 21 and you're wondering about your next five years, you're kept for Jesus Christ. That you're absolutely secure in your identity for him and in his ownership of you and the reality that he is coming back for you. He's coming back. Whether you're gone when he comes back, you'll raise from the grave before the rest of us and we're like, oh, look, there's that guy. It's incredible. Or, or whether you're still on the planet when he comes back and we're like, oh, we're still here. Party, Jesus. You're kept for Jesus Christ. So nothing that can happen in your future, it doesn't matter who the president's going to be. Have we cued into that as a church yet? I just offended somebody. It's fine. Jesus Christ is the king. He's in charge. He's in control. It doesn't matter whether the economy is going up or down, whether Canada invades us or China. It doesn't matter. We're closer to Canada. We should be concerned about that. <laughs> Jesus Christ will keep you. He's in control. He's in charge. Our identity is that he's called us in the past. He owns us. We're absolutely... In his love, we've got an infinite bank of love and we're kept for the future. He's sovereign, he's in control, he's in charge, and he's trustworthy. I need a clock. They changed my iPad. There's no longer a clock on top. Verse two. See, you didn't think I could go that long on verse one, did you? It's pretty impressive. Verse two. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, right now, you're going, oh, that's a great greeting. When we walk through this chapter and you start to appreciate the context and the culture that these people were living in and the culture that you live in, the idea that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you are tremendous and sweet gifts. God's mercy will sustain you in times of difficulty. According to Hebrews 4.16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. I don't know if you've ever dissected that, but that's not you find mercy and grace on your best day. It's you find mercy and grace in your time of need. When you're wore out, wore through, things are hard, you show up in the throne room and God doesn't look at you and go, moron, 
Why weren't you doing X, Y, and Z? I told you. He lavishes his mercy and his grace on you when you need it the most. May his mercy be multiplied to you. His peace, his peace will give you a calmness in the midst of evil. Philippians 4, 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. May his peace be multiplied to you. And his love, his love protects and it assures believers in the face of adversity. Romans 5, 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God loves us with an enormity. May his love be multiplied to you over and over and over again. As we walk through a five-week series on contending for the gospel, knowing what your identity is key, knowing who you are in Jesus Christ is key. That, that Christianity and following Jesus is, is not basically about becoming a better moral person, and it's not basically about feeling better about yourself. It's about finding yourself in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and letting your life tell that story. It's understanding that you're called for before the beginning of the time. It's understanding that you're loved with this enormous love and that you're kept in all situations and in all circumstances. As we walk through this, understand who Jesus was and the tremendous work at the cross and what that gives you, the love and the hope that it gives you to tell his story to the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you so much. I'm thankful, God, that your, that the cross was not given so that I'd be a better moral person wasn't given so that I would follow the rules better or that I would have to try harder. That the heart of Christianity is not try more, be better. The heart of our faith is to love your son, to accept what he did at the cross, to understand that we're insufficient to the task and to find ourselves complete in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.